Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Dan McPherson. Dan, how are you doing? I am fantastic. How are you, Josh? I'm very good. A little while ago, I did some episodes with Dove Barron where he interviewed me. And you were you played a major role in coming up with that, not coming up with that idea. You do that on your podcast. We have, how, do you, how do you call it on your podcast? A podcast takeover. A podcast takeover where someone interviews you on your podcast. It was supremely valuable for me uh, as a growth experience for Dove to interview me. We talked about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You and I talk about a lot of things, heart attacks in your case. <laughs> yeah. We talked about race. We talked about doing a follow-up to Dove's episodes to talk about race. Is that about right? Yeah, I think that that matches. And the the takeovers on my show have been growth experiences for me as well. I much like what we're doing here. I give the guests the opportunity to ask any questions. I don't really know them ahead of time. And in my case, I don't even really know the topic, which makes me a little nervous, but it's mm-hmm. been, it's been a learning experience all the way through. And you and I, we've talked about so many different topics. One of them that has come up repeatedly in our conversations has been race. And it makes sense to explore that as part of a group conversation rather than just the two of us. And I want to point out that it was long before, I, I, we were talking about that before the pandemic, I believe, you know, there's this book that I'm working on. Sorry, everyone, you don't get to hear what it's about yet, but it touches on race and it came about before the George Floyd takeover of the news. And so there's, there was a lot to talk about, but actually before getting into that, let's talk about for a second, let's plug a bit of your episode that we talked about, about what you shared on your episode with, on your, your being on my podcast. And also share us a, for people who didn't hear that, what do you do on your podcast so that they can go listen to that too? I won't mind if they pause this to listen to you. <laughs> to yours. I, I appreciate that. Uh, my podcast is the Dreams Are Real podcast. And think of it like the origin stories for superheroes. In this case, the superheroes are entrepreneurs and creatives of all sorts all around the world. We've had people from 20 countries, 25 different careers, and lots of different backgrounds. And what we really try to show is that your story is the most unique and powerful thing that you have, that there is always light through the darkness, and, and that dreams truly are real. So we share a lot of inspiration and a lot of practical advice paired with that. What type of audience do you have? Who comes to you? We have a pretty eclectic audience because our guests are so eclectic, but the the core of it is creatives, women, and entrepreneurs from around the world. They are drawn, I think, to that inspiration, to the idea that you can uncover what your dreams are that you can that once you accept that dreams are real that you can then maybe unlock it and achieve them and and move towards that so those who are looking for forward movement and who engage with the the creative and connective aspect of dreams and of the inspirational journeys that people go on that's absolutely our audience i've listened to a bunch of your stuff i'm happy to hear i showed up into some of it and <laughs> yes the mutual friends I think I may have been a bit flippant when I said heart attack a few seconds ago, because you and I were chatting before we started recording. But when you were on my podcast, you had had a heart attack and they should listen to that. But can you say a bit more? Actually, I'm curious, how have things gone in the past couple of weeks since we last spoke? Yeah. So July 10th of this year, I had a heart attack. I'm 46 years old. So it was pretty 
pretty crazy. And I encourage everybody to go listen to that episode, hear us walk through a lot of what occurred and how that impacted me. Since then, I have been fortunate to have completed, not only started, but completed cardiac rehab and got my little graduation certificate and a little cheer on my way out the door. I will check in there once a month. I have a check-in coming up, but was able to make progress with health goals. I've adapted my own environment in terms of the pills that I need to take, but also of the exercise and food choices that I'm making. And you and I have talked a little bit about that. Oddly enough, at the same time, having been on having been on your podcast, I have completely moved away from plastic water bottles. I wouldn't want to miss that impact to the environment. And as a result of me having done that, a couple of others have done the same as well. And so the opportunity to be here and talk about the heart attack also connects to my uh, the health of my personal internal environment, but also my external environment as well. I love the smiles that when people, before they make changes on the environmental things, they always seem to have like, oh, what next? How much more do I have to do? And then after it's like, oh, check out this. So you in, in your food choices, is there anything that you avoid now? There are things that I avoid six days a week, I guess is what I will say there. I, I have I have a little too strong of a love affair with food, but I'm eating significantly less salt. I'm eating quite a bit less processed sugar. I'm eating a lot less saturated fat. And as I'm sure you'll be happy to hear, I'm eating significantly less doof in the world. Ah, there we go. <laughs> That's what I was fishing for. <laughs> oh, I knew you were. I, I saw the bait, but I had to. I had to work my way over to it. I was thinking about you earlier today when uh, I was at the farmer's market picking up all these vegetables. And I was like, I, I wonder if he's gotten, it's probably too fast. If you were eating a lot of doof before it, for me, it took a good six months before, not just that I liked the vegetables, but that like the vegetables brought me more overall food, pleasure and joy than the doof ever had. But it takes a while to get there. I don't, yeah, I, I would say I have some. I would say I'm on that path. I've been craving because partially because I'm working out and doing some of the other right things. My body's craving the things that it needs rather than the garbage that I could feed it. So I'm craving this week. I was craving a pomegranate. So I went and got an amazing pomegranate from the farmer's market or being able to get other vegetables and fruits that I'm connecting with in a better way, making very soon again, your lovely no packaging vegetable stew. And uh, that is, that's something that we saw. It was available online to the recipe. We looked it up, made it, and it was great. So we're looking forward to doing that again. Actually, I think this coming week. My heart is so warmed. (laughs) I love this. There's various people across the country who are like, who make the famous no pack? I now call it famous no packaging vegan stew, just for a little some, saving a few syllables. Nice. Well, we want you to be efficient in every way that you can. So, <laughs> and we want you living a long, healthy life. I want that as well. I'm I'm super appreciative of the opportunity to be here and have discussions like this, to show up and have an opportunity to shine and to be here to fulfill the mission that I'm meant for in the world. And every bit of that comes as a result of making it through the crazy situations of my life, including a heart attack for which I, I hope 30, 40 years ago, I won't be able to say that that was my first heart attack, but just the one that I had. And that, that's something I'm aggressively working towards. I'm going to close out talking about that with a teaser for people, because I think most people would expect that when you have a life and death experience like that, that you realize your values and you shift and you change things. And the teaser is that that's not what Dan said happened. 
in, in that area. So you have to go listen to that episode to find out why it was different for him than many others in that area. Is that a fair representation? That is a very fair representation for the first time in my life something different happened than me having to make a significant assessment. And we talk about that in detail. It's worth listening to. Now let's, do you know how we started talking about race in the first place? Actually, maybe should I just leave it to you now and just hand it off, hand the reins to you? Well, you can certainly do that. I, I, as I think back, I, you and I've had a bunch of conversations around this area. It started, as I recall, you're right, many months ago before the pandemic even, with mentions of different incidents that you had encountered. I think we didn't, we didn't even really begin talking about it in the guise of race or racism. We, we talked about it as just parts of our story and things that, things that we had both experienced when we were younger. Over time, the framework around it feels like that it has developed. But I, I think even, even starting at a pretty basic level would be good. When you think about race and not even just in this country or anything else, but when you think about race, that's what we're labeling the conversation a little bit. What does that mean to you? What does that bring to mind? There's a couple things. There's two main areas that hit me simultaneously. One is a series of childhood memories. Going up really to high school, after high school, I guess college at Columbia, Columbia described itself as the most diverse of the Ivies. And it was that was like the least diverse place I'd ever been by that point. The other is how the media responds to white people talking about race outside of certain acceptable things. Like there's, there's one recent, this is a professor at USC, a tenured professor, I believe, who was talking about things in language. I think it's like in English we have like, you know, I was going mm-hmm. to the store like to do this, like that, like it's a filler. Right. And apparently in Chinese, there's no ga is, or it means that, I think. And it, it shows up a lot in Chinese. He was saying no ga. And this offended some students and he got fired. A tenured f- faculty got fired for saying something that sounded like a word in English. And uh-huh, right. so this, you know, this is a book out right now, White Fragility. And it, it, I think it was a number one bestseller. I don't think that that guy was fragile. I think that he was overpowered. And so to talk about these things, there's certainly things that I could say. It seems like there's a lot of people who say, a lot of white people who say a certain range of things. Like if I were to say to you, you know, we don't have to think about it every day of our lives. But people with other skin colors, every day they're reminded about it. That gets said a lot. Right. And there's a, a couple other things that like it said a lot. And if I were to say those things, I'd be perfectly fine saying those things. And I agree with those things, but they don't seem, they, they may be honest, but they don't seem candid. They don't seem vulnerable. They don't seem personal. So I have these personal memories and I have these, what someone could mislabel as fragility, but I think it's more like seeing what happens when you go outside those bounds. Okay. I think it's probably good for us to start wide and then narrow the lens a little bit. And the the wider part here feels like the the societal connection and how these are viewed and even maybe why we would jump into a topic like this. Why do you feel it's so important to talk about this, to bring it to the surface, whether it be 
for you or for the audience? There's different reasons why I started versus why I want to continue. Okay. Why I started, my main focus is on stewardship, on sustainability, on living sustainably, uh, on leadership and sustainability. There's huge overlap between who's making the choices and who's dealing with the choices that the others make in the world today. That's on class lines, that's on race lines, that's on geographical lines. A lot of what I'm working on, some of the stuff that I'm working on is going to overlap with race issues, also class issues, also geographical issues. You know, we in America make choices, say on plastic, and then off in the Philippines, there are people whose houses are dwarfed by the trash that someone dumped on them because China's not taking any more and we used to ship it over there. There's race involved in, in these things. And I realized that I have to speak honestly about some things, also personally about some things, but I'm, a, I'm, I'm afraid to because if a tenured faculty can get fired for something, speaking a couple words in a different language, I don't have that kind of job security. I don't have any job. You know, it's like, I mean, I get corporate gigs and corporate gig. I don't know how much corporates, corporations are interested in people if they get labels stuck to them that, that like, however inaccurate might stick. Now, why I keep doing it is that as I've spoken, done more research, opened up and talked to a bunch of people of why, widely disparate backgrounds and widely dis disparate skin colors, I guess is a funny way of putting it, but you know what I mean? I hope you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. What I've learned is that there's a lot of stuff inside me that I just didn't share. Like I, I felt like if I were to share certain things, then people would attack me or punish me or, or, or you know, uh, cancel me. And then I realized if I don't share these things, they've already canceled me. Right. You're allowing yourself to be erased without ever having had a voice. Yeah. My experience is the more that I share with people, the more people respond that it's interesting at least and not, it's not bad. You know, it's not, um, it's not racist. It's, it's my life. Yeah. And, and I think that's from what you're saying, it feels like that's a really important point is that you're, yes, you're risking something by delving into this topic, especially with as white hot as the topic is right now in society, particularly in the U S. But what I hear you saying is you're, willing to take that risk because if you don't you're being silenced and if you and if and if you don't then you're not putting an important discussion in play but you're also concerned about it because uh, because there's there's the opportunity for it to be not heard how you intend or not heard how it's how it, you're trying to enter into the world is that fair yeah i mean there's a lot to unpack it's uh i could easily say something like i just said it's not racist right. and now, I think other people would say it's anti-racist. And some people might say, Josh doesn't get it. He thinks you can just be not racist. Doesn't he know that you can be racist or anti-racist, but not, not racist? So there's a lot of ways people look at things. And a lot of people have much louder voices than mine. They could take what I say and run with it. And well, make an maybe, the, let's make maybe an give it themselves. a space for the framing then. Let, let's let's t maybe take a moment for a definition. When you talk about racist and not racist. What do you mean? How do you differentiate the two? There's, there's one thing about how society does or how the books differentiate it. But in your mind, 
when you think of racist and not racist, what does it mean? Oh, I, I mean, I don't want to get too much into labels because um, okay. everyone's going to, I'll say one thing, people are going to. Do you think that's really part want... of the problem because we're trying to go too far towards labels? Well, I mean, people are like, like say someone's racist and you say that person's racist. What does that achieve? What we do, I, I, can we table this for a bit and come back to it if yeah. it's important? Absolutely. And I, I also think that there's another piece here, a, a point that I, I would highlight that may be helpful, that when, when I train communication, which I've been focused on a lot for the last few months, there's an exercise that we do and we, we intentionally call it the labeling exercise, partially because of the association with labels in the world. And we find that when most people meet somebody, they immediately have a label that they attach to them, whatever that may be. So our challenge is to say, here's a list of 400 labels. Think of that person and circle every one of the labels that's appropriate to them to give you a clearer picture of the full person. And part of what I hear you saying is that regardless of of how you approach this, it's important to look at a broader perspective rather than getting hung up on, on a word or a spot. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I read, I mean, I, I not long ago finished reading Kennedy's How to Be an Anti-Racist. And I would say, well, by his definition, I would be, m- most of my activity would be anti-racist. But I don't know if I adopt like you're the, this, this you're the with us or against us, this, this dichotomy that uh, it, it's, I said, I was telling someone I was reading it and he was like, oh, like George Bush, when he said, you're either with us or against us. You could frame it that way. I think as a leadership technique, it's, it can be very effective. You know, when George Bush, after 9-11, said, you're the with us or against us, that's pretty effective because right. if you adopt that view that it's black or white, no pun intended, then you're going to be, well, am I going to be on the side of the terrorists who blew up the, or who, who destroyed the World Trade Center? No, then I guess I'm with George Bush. Right. Suddenly, that polarizes and brings everything, you know, gets the overwhelming majority to him. Does that mean you have to be? with him or against him? No, I don't think that has to be the case. That's his opinion. So that polarization is one of the challenges and it, and it feels like that's one of the challenges as you describe it, that has maybe prevented you from feeling comfortable speaking out about issues that are very real to you up until now, because you, you're jumping into the middle of, of polar magnets. Most of the time when I hear, when I hear people describe the white the typical white situation, it does, it sounds, it sounds foreign to me. It, it doesn't make, it doesn't resonate with my experience. In and what way? when they talk about black experience or person of color experience, that has a lot more resonance with me. Mm. The, the comment I said before about blacks, they, they're aware of it every day. It's something reminds them, you know, it's, it's something they have to be conscious of all the time, whether they want, want that to be the case or not. I'm like, when I first heard that, I was like, that's not the case for everyone. It was a, a weird idea for me that things didn't remind you of your race all the time because growing up in, you know, at the, especially at the times when I was in a racial minority, it was like, of course I'm aware of it every moment. A lot of stuff I've been through, oh man, I met this guy. I'm sure you get this uh, publicist, right? And then, you know, so-and-so's coming out with a book or so-and-so coming out with this thing. And, oh yeah. And, you know, they might be a good guest on your podcast and some I have, some I don't. So this one guy, his stuff didn't really fit exactly. It wasn't, it didn't fit with me, but you know, I, I go to the page and I look up who it is and, and research and find out. I'm not just, you know, just blindly saying that. So he grew up in a black neighborhood in LA and he's white. 
I wrote back and said, the overlap isn't quite right, but his background is interesting to me. And, and if he's interested in a call, I'd be interested too. This is the first person I spoke to outside of my own family, who was a white guy who, who got the shit kicked out of him multiple times as a kid, was like a powerless, I don't want to say powerless, I'm speaking a little bluntly here. I see with him, it was a sense of understanding that was right. automatic that I'd never had before in my life of he would say things. And I was like, that happened to me. And I would say things and he'd be like, yep, I know that. And I'd never had that before. And when people talk about like whites are this way, I'm like, what? I, I, I don't understand what they're talking about. I mean, there's an overlap too with, with, well, I don't want to get into sexual preference as well, but there's also the straight experience doesn't resonate with me either, even though I'm straight, but my various other sexual preferences don't align perfectly with the, like the mainstream. So I, was, I had my plenty of guilt and shame and feeling like, oh, turns out in my world, if you come out as gay or gay or lesbian or you know, something non-straight, you get a parade. I mean, I live in Greenwich Village in Manhattan. Right. There's no parade for me. So there's various places where I felt like all these experiences that felt very similar, very familiar to me were other groups. And if I was, and if I were to, I, I, I never felt welcome to share in those things, to be a part of those things. In fact, I was rejected from those things. You know, like right now, it's like the best thing you can do right now is to, is to shut up and listen. I'm like, oh man, I, I thought. You feel like you've been doing that forever. Yeah, I feel like I've been doing that forever. I certainly, I've not felt like my voice was welcome. I don't feel like the history books cover my history. They cover, and, and they cover, yeah, there's a lot of white men in those history books, but I don't feel like Napoleon and, and Alexander the Great and Hitler represent me very well. There's a lot of white men in power and I don't feel like Trump or, I mean, I got an MBA and I don't do anything corporate. It's, I, I don't feel like. You don't feel like you've taken the, the path that, 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 that track that's maybe rutted out that everybody's grouped into? Well, it's not just that I haven't, the way you said it, it says it's like a choice, but it's not a choice of mine to, to have lived the life that I've lived. I mean, many things were choices, but not like where I grew up, not, um, not my sexual preference or there's certain things that were just as far as I could tell handed to me. Well, let, that way. let's take a little bit of a look at that and, and we can come back, we can dive in and then come back out, but it, it feels like it would be beneficial to provide some context. So talk about where and how you grew up and then, and then let's dive a little bit into how this plays in. And then we can come on and talk about maybe the, the broader application of, of that. Okay. Now this, I want to start with something a little bit before that, because when people hear me talking about my experience, I feel like they really want to make sure that I know how much other people had it worse. <laughs> and so the I want to comparisons. Comparison is the thief of well, everything pretty much, right? The thief of what? Pretty much everything. I mean, you know, comparison is the thief of joy, I think is the quote, but comparison is the, is, is I think the thief of so many things in our life. So, I mean, I was just reading about the Washington Post did a long piece on um, George Floyd's background. Right. And how he lived in neighborhoods where whites could choose not to live, but blacks didn't have the choice. He came from a slave background, you know, far enough back there was slavery in his ancestry and there were areas where the police would, if you're black, 
you'd probably go to jail for something. If you're white, they'd, you know, a warning or let you off or something like that. Many, many things that for black and a black male in particular, are, these are going to be major hurdles that if you're not black male, you're probably going to have it not so difficult. I grew up in a world that there are huge advantages to being white. There might be a few areas where there's advantages to not being white, but I think they're, you know, materially speaking, it's going to be very limited in, in comparison. So for things having nothing to do with me, I've had access to places and things and people that people without my skin color have not had that access or had much limited access relative to me. Slavery may have formally ended, you know, may, may, may have been outlawed some time ago, but even if everyone wanted to make everything not racist ever since then, I don't think it's enough time for that to undo itself. So there's going to be all sorts of places in the system where these things persist. I live in that world. I live in a world where things are like that. I'm not trying to claim otherwise. That said, okay, so the question you asked is, what are some of these experiences? If, did I remember right? You did. And I, and I think you did a nice and important job of highlighting that there's systemic racism right that there's this there's this broad picture of racism that's generational that that causes a societally narrower access for those of other skin colors in the US and I, and it's interesting because i think if you look in other countries it, in some cases it's reversed or it's it's very it's slanted very differently but in the US we certainly see that systemic problem and now Yes, what I would look for is what is your context? What was, what was it like growing up for you? And let's go back to the genesis of where this conversation is really starting from for you almost viscerally. Well, if I go back to my earliest memories, and I've shared these on different episodes of my podcast. So hopefully I'm, I'm going to be a little quick, but let me, yeah. I assume that everyone listens to all my episodes and, and of remembers course. them very religiously. <laughs> they study um, the transcripts too. Yeah. <laughs> and if, I, if I'm too quick about anything, tell me to go faster or tell me to go back and, and redo it. But I mean, my parents met in India, how a Lutheran from South Dakota, a farm and a small town happened to be in India on a Fulbright. I don't know. I've asked, I still don't get it. Actually preview for or foreshadowing something later is that actually this research that I'm doing is finally, I think I'm finally getting where this came from. I mean, she's told me, but the answers never clicked. And some of the stuff I'm working on is, Talking about this stuff is enabling me to share and have this stuff come out. And instead of just hiding it inside because I'm afraid of people attacking me, I can share my experience and unpack things that are very difficult to unpack when you're holding it inside. That's not me being fragile. That's me realizing that I could have my career destroyed. This is something that's just hit me in like the last week or two. It's like, oh, that's why mom did this. So anyway maybe in episode two or three, or if we get there, I'll, I'll talk about that. She was in India on a Fulbright teaching English. My dad, a borderline Orthodox Jew from Pittsburgh is also there. He's got his PhD in history doing research on the city of Ahmedabad, India, which is kind of like Pittsburgh for India, except instead of steel mills, it's textile mills. Now, why they were there, I'm not exactly sure. Once they're there, in the mid sixties, pre Beatles, they're going to meet each other because there's like seven Americans in the whole city. Somehow they get married years later. I get born after I'm the middle of three kids. 
I'm an older sister, and younger sister. So I spent a year of my childhood, which I don't really remember that well, but I'll, I'll tell you what I do remember is that I had super blonde hair, toehead for people who know the term, and very pale skin. Kids would swarm around me and touch my hair and pick my pockets. This is what I remember. It was like fingers in my pockets, which is like a kind of intimate thing. Right. And fear of like, what, ah, what's going on? Now, you might say, well, you know, you were closer to the, the imperialist powers. Like I was three years old. I don't know about imperial powers. I know that I'm surrounded by all these kids who are like, I don't know what's going on. And of course, anyone who's been to India, well, it's changed now. The last time I was there was, I don't know, over 10 years ago. But you come back to the States and people talk about poverty here and it's like, not on the, it's like a totally different world. Completely different scale. Yeah. I mean, not even comparable. I mean, comparable, but not close. No, but I, I, I get that. Having spent time in Southeast Asia and the Philippines and all that, seeing the things that are there versus the things that are in the U.S., it's a, it's a vastly different story. Yeah. And so I, something about being here didn't feel like, anyway, so my parents get divorced after a while when I'm a kid, I'm on like four or five years old joint custody. So me and my two sisters go back and forth between the houses, you know, four days here, three there, and then four there and three here, three here. One of the houses is in a very economically depressed neighborhood in Philadelphia. Uh, it's row houses. I feel like probably like 50, 60, 70 row houses on this block. Three of them have white families. We being one of them, the rest being black. Later, we moved to another house not far away from there. That one was a little safer. But in this place, I mean, part of the reason we moved away was the kids picking on mainly me. I don't know how much my two sisters got it. I mean, the, the precipitating factor was when they put a, a lit firecracker in my pocket. And I'm sorry, a, a, yeah, lit. And then it exploded. I have no memory of this. The rest of the family all knows about this. And I don't, I don't know. I, it's, I guess it's been blocked out. But that was when my mom said, that's no more of this. Because if you listen to my episode with my mom, she talks about a lot of this. Okay. She talked about how kids would steal our lunches when we were waiting for the buses. And, and was that because of your skin color or because you were small or because you, because of, was it overt or is it something that's, that's less obvious? Yeah. Good, good question. And I, I can't, most of it, I don't remember. I just kind of have the memories of the feelings. Right. And so you have that, you have that, that connection to it, whether it was that or not, it's hard to know. I have no idea what their motivations were. Right. But you just know that you had a firecracker explode in your pocket. Well, I know that now, but I also know right. that it was, um, I mean, there's, you know, it was a fearful, it's fearful, but also not because my mom is, hugely community like she we put her anywhere she's going to start putting her network out and starting meeting people so i also remember going to the neighbor's church with like this i think it was pentecostal so it was like the singing and the speaking in tongues right and so when i saw the blues brothers many many years later i was like oh man that reminds me of that experience <laughs> when i was a little kid right meanwhile in my dad's house that was well my parents specifically chose to live in an integrated neighborhood so my dad's house was not an impoverished neighborhood. Up the block from him would be Gabby and Werner, who, were, who had escaped the Holocaust along with Uma. So they were very close to our family as well. But you're the, living in two very different environments. Yeah. My mom pointed out something that hadn't occurred to me, that when we moved away from there, 
we could move away from there. Black families could probably not move away to as easily. It was uh, a choice for you, right? It was a choice. And, not and for you, for your family. We had a choice available to us that was much more available. I mean, the, the realtors, my mom was sharing this with me, that the realtors, when they showed the houses, were like, do you want to live in an all-white neighborhood or do you want to live in an integrated neighborhood? I presume that if you're black, you didn't get the option. Yeah, I presume not so well, much. Yeah, do you want to live in a, do you want to turn a white neighborhood into an integrated neighborhood? <laughs> I don't think they were given that option. Probably not. That said, the, the next place where we lived, my mom was mugged at knife point around the corner from that. Like, um, how do I put it? Like on a street block, if you walk down and turn right, so that you're, you don't actually cross the street, you're on the same block. Right. That, that's how close to where she got mugged at knife point. I got mugged at knife point much later in life. But as a kid, I got mugged four times as a kid. Another time traveling in Europe, I got mugged at knife point. But that was, that was the only time I was a white person. The rest was all black boys. And I remember thinking to myself as a kid, why shouldn't I be racist? Because it's all blacks mugging me. And I never got there. It never made sense to me that it was the skin color that was doing it. I kind of felt like I should be, but it never clicked. I couldn't really get there. Did you also feel like that they wouldn't have mugged somebody who looked like them, that they wouldn't have mugged a black kid? Well, let me describe a couple of the times. Mm -hmm. One time I was riding my bike home from the library, maybe half a mile ride. You know, you kind of sense people riding behind you. So I'm riding my little BMX bike, a Huffy, the red Huffy BMX that I bought. And we're a little badass. We got it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm riding along and I, I, I sent some kids riding behind me and I'm like, they seem like they're following me, but I'm not sure. So I, I ride off the curb into the street and they go into the street and then I go back on the curb and they go back on the curb. And I was like, uh Oh, something, something's up with this. And then one of them rides ahead and, and like turns in front of me. So I have to stop. And I'm on the sidewalk on the right hand side of the street. And then one gets next to me and then a, a, a couple behind me. And I would guess there's five or six of them. So the one next to me, has got a wrench in my face. He's saying, I forget what I'm really scared. I'm looking out at the traffic. This is broad daylight. And there are all, all these cars are going by. And I'm like, someone stop. Like, is it clear that like one of these kids doesn't belong in this group? Cause they're all black kids. At one point I'm, I've, I'm like, I'm going to go. And I start moving my bike to leave to kind of go between the, the bike in front of me and the bike to the side of me. And something's stuck on the back wheel. And I look back and there, there's another kid with a wrench and he's taking my back wheel off. That's what's going on here is they're taking mm -hmm. a part of my bike. Well, and with you on it. Yeah. And with his wrench in my face. So the wrench gets, he, he waves the wrench in my face. I'm like, oh man, I don't want to get hit in the head with a wrench. And I'm trying to figure out like, what's really hitting me is that I'm going to get home with a tire off the back of my bike a, a bike, a, a back tireless bike. And I'm, how do I explain this? So finally they take the wheel off and they're about to leave. It hits me that I'd rather say that the whole bike was stolen. So I throw the bike down, walk away and say, take the whole thing. Cause then, and so I go home and I say the bike was stolen from the library. Why would you rather say the whole bike was stolen? Because then I don't have to say, this is what, only when I first told the story in the past couple of years, like on my blog, you'll see, I wrote about this somewhere, or maybe recorded onto a podcast episode. I never shared it with anyone because I felt so ashamed. And all the times that I would hear about people being mugged or raped or something like that. And they would say, I felt so ashamed that I didn't do anything. I always felt like 
why would you feel ashamed? Of course you wouldn't do anything. It, you know, like whatever's happening, it could be worse. But I never applied that to myself. Right. So it was a deep shame of not defending myself, of not doing something. A, a question just about when you first described the incident and these, these kids have surrounded you and they're hanging out with you and the cars are driving by and you said a moment ago, could they not see that I didn't belong? All the rest of these kids were black. Why would you, why would that instantly give you the picture that you didn't belong? If you live in an integrated neighborhood, if you live, if you're connecting with different people, it, what would they naturally have assumed driving by? Should they have assumed you didn't belong? Well, I should add that there's like, it. I think that I looked surrounded. Okay. that And that's different. I just, I, I felt like that would be a question I would have if I were, if I were I, listening, but I understand, I think I understand where you come from because we've talked about this example before as well. Since you asked, I, I, I was like trying to like beam out, like help me, help me. Right. I was trying to look helpless. Can they not see that I, that I'm in danger? Can they yeah. not see that I'm surrounded? Yeah. So another time I was with a friend and we were at the art museum steps, you know, with the Rocky stuff and uh, oh, I mean, yeah. not, not doing the Rocky stuff, but it, it was a hot summer day and the fountains you could play in. A friend of mine and I rode the different bikes down to the art museum. We were like swimming in the fountains and there's a bunch of black kids and they come up and they're like, Hey, can those are nice bikes. Can we ride the bikes? And we're like, no. And they just pestered us and pestered us and pestered us and kept, you know, can we ride the bikes? Can we ride the bikes? And we're like, no, 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 no. And finally they're like, we just want to ride it like there and back. Just that's it. That's it. There and back. And finally like, fine, just there and back. And two kids get on the bike and they're all gone. Like, boom, they're gone. Right. Everyone disappears. And we're like, oh, so it was like the weird way of stealing the bike. But like, maybe because we left, I don't know what, I mean, but we were two white boys and they're all, it was actually a couple of girls in there. So it wasn't all black boys. Another time I was riding with someone else down by the uh, Wissican Creek near my dad's house. And we're riding along and there's a path and we, there's like no way around. And like two, two older black guys are coming toward us and you expect them to go out of the way, get out of the way. And they don't. And so we stopped and then they put the hands on the handlebars and said, get off the bike. And again, how ashamed I felt. I lied to the police on that one and said that he had a knife that the guy in front of me had a knife and he didn't, but I felt so ashamed about not having defended myself. I mean, he was bigger than me and older than me, but I have an older stepbrother who would have probably fought back. So I, I hid this and have never been able to share it. So when I think of a little while ago, there was this 2020, an episode of some news show from the seventies or eighties that recently made the rounds again on YouTube, where it was some black kids were in Long Island. They were riding these bikes through, they stumbled into a white supremacy rally in Long Island during the civil rights period, I believe. And people were like, oh, everyone says the North is so integrated, but look, it's not. And I think they threw rocks at the kids or something like that. And I watched it and I was like, that's what it felt like. Except I was the black, I was the racial minority that was totally overpowered by the others. And these are not feelings that I've really faced in a long time. I really appreciate your asking me this because 
there's a weird cathartic feeling of, of expressing something that I have not noticed these, like I'm feeling stuff that I haven't felt in 40 years. My mom was telling me about how there was another time where these two guys, there were two guys, one with a big rock. They were saying they wanted my watch. I had saved up all this money to, to buy a calculator watch, the Casio calculator watch. Oh like yeah. I remember the calculator watch. I lived for that thing. Yeah. And I was like, so happy to get it. And so they wanted it. So they're, and they're, they're like, give us a watch, give us a watch. I was like, no, I'm not going to give it to you. And one of them shoves me down at that moment by chance a plainclothes cop car was going by and it screeches to a halt. They jump out. One guy drops to the ground and starts crying. The other takes off. So one of the cops comes over and starts cuffing, I think, the kid next to me. And the other one eventually comes back with the other kid. So they got both of them. Because the cops witnessed this, technically this is the police, or it's going to be like the state versus whoever those kids were. I'm a witness, so I get subpoenaed. What I remember was that going to court and they didn't show up. But what my mom told me recently during the pandemic, and I think this was on the episode that I, when she was on my podcast as a guest, she said that one time one of them did show up and apparently I'd had a growth spurt in between that time. Cause I was like, I don't know, 10, 15, no, not 15, right. like something like 10 years old. So I'd had a growth spurt. And she said that the cop looked at me and said, why didn't you do something? Which I mean, the, it's hard for me not to think of, of, say, of like that would commonly be said to a woman who was raped. Right. Why, why did you, no, tantamount to saying, why are you wearing the watch in the first place? Why are you dressed that way? And then right. if you're dressed, you know, why didn't you do something about it? And um, that would be victim blaming. I mean, it, it, no, not quite victim blaming, but it's anyway. There were well, victim, victim shaming, if nothing else, for sure. Yeah, I, I think it fits into. I think it fits into that category. I guess the the question. There's uh, well, two things. One, there's no question that you had some brutally difficult situations. And, and this, by the way, is this is not yet junior high. High school, it goes on. I mean, my right. high school was like forty percent black, forty percent white, fifty percent Asian. So there's a whole other set of things that happen there. Yeah, and I, I think it's important for us to take a look at those as well. As I hear these, what it feels like is difficult to discern, and this is why I keep asking in this area, is in any portion of society, there are good people, there are bad people, right? Whether whether it be white, black, anything else. In, a, in any place where you live or exist, there's a group that is the majority and the minority. The question is, are these these acts, these situations perpetuated from a racial motivation, i.e. racism, or are they perpetuated from a um, means of opportunity, right? From a, from a situation of opportunity and you happen to be the, the victim for a variety of reasons in a number of situations based upon your environment. Yeah, my takeaway is that I was not able to get to a place where I felt like it was motivated by race. I felt like, right. Did we live in a situation where there's two things that I noticed. One is that I, I was aware, I'm aware that the United States is a majority white place, but that wasn't my personal experience of it. Right. So I was in a place where the system, I was in a powerless situation that I didn't have options that others did. 
like that's what felt more that's why when i hear this it feels like right i was in a situation where you know at that at rockland street the place with the firecracker down the block they would set up you know they put the milk crate up on the um on the pole and play basketball they put yes. like a, a yep. piece of plywood with a milk crate up on the pole and they play basketball these were in the days of dr j in philadelphia and i didn't that was not accessible to me i was an outsider there um i didn't have access to that and i, I you know as you, you mean said, you weren't allowed to play it's not that i wasn't allowed to play i just wouldn't feel comfortable it i mean they were older i wasn't that was like the whole down the block, the, we were, the street was on a hill and to, the down the block was, it gets sketchier and sketchier. Right. And these were places that were fearful for me to go to. So when I hear people say like, there are places you can go to that people without your skin color don't feel comfortable with. I'm like, that reminds me of something in my life. A lot of things in my life. Right. I mean, when when I, I come- th- that I can relate to as well, Josh, I, I, I ran sales appointments for a long time. I, I ran straight commission sales appointments on telemarketed leads. And we would go into whatever area at whatever time of day or night. And there were areas where I was very concerned for my safety. Now, others would apply different labels to that. For me, I just knew it was not a safe area. It was people who were doing not good things. So I I do, I resonate with that of having those areas where you don't feel safe to go. You don't feel comfortable to go. I 100% get that part. Mm -hmm. I'm curious as you, as you went forward, how that continued to build, it just feels like it kept going. Right. Oh, I also have to interject that there were a lot of experiences that were the opposite. That was like, I felt connected with people. Like I felt there's another thing that when, like people talk about not having met people of different skin colors and so forth, but I felt right. infused with that. So what I'm sharing is the stuff that I, I've never shared before or right. have, have limitedly shared before. There's lots of other things that were, it was more, more of the, these memories more come from high school of the, and junior high was how integrated things were, how surprising when I went to college that people had not had these experiences, that not experiences, but um, connections. We just, Central High School in Philadelphia and Masterman Junior High, we were aware of different skin colors and different backgrounds and so forth but they weren't problems they weren't the defining factor they were interesting yeah like i was definitely aware of like my vietnamese friend and my filipino friend and my black friend and like they were we knew that they had different backgrounds but i don't feel that there was judgment attached to it i don't think in 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 different directions See, and for me, it was a little bit the opposite. When I was in high school, there was definitely judgment attached to it. And, and as I look back, I'm frustrated by it. But I grew up in a, I don't know, 95% white community for, a, for maybe more than that for some of the communities that I lived in. When I went to college at the University of Michigan, it really was a very diverse place where I, I connected and I fit in well in the sense that I had friends that of all different racism, backgrounds, ethnicities, everything. And I never really thought a a word of it other than it, other than it was like you say, it was interesting because it was something to learn about. So I I, I kind of had the reverse, I think, experience of what you did. Yeah, it was, it was really, I remember friends of mine that would, they had very different experiences. We just knew that everyone came from different backgrounds. And it was weird for me 
like how Colombia was so much like we're so diverse, so diverse, so diverse. And I was like, the black people are richer than me here. They're like, they've had in today's language, it felt like the people who are the diverse ones actually had more privilege because they were coming from like, if they came from a different country, they came from the upper class of that country. If they came from a different skin color, they came from the upper class of that skin color. And, you know, we were hardly lower class. We were middle-class pretty solidly, but I'm yeah, the, curious when you were when you were there, were you thinking these other people are more well off than I am, and they other these other people have more privilege, or were you thinking, hey, the black people here have more privilege than I do? Like, was there was there a conscious component even at that point? I would, I mean, I, that's the term that we use now, privilege. But to me, it just felt like where's the, where's the diversity? Where's the where are they? You know, I got to throw in here this whole thing about. Uh, I haven't put in Judaism, which is that I was raised, my, my mom converted from Lutheran to Judaism, but I think culturally she didn't have the, I mean, she didn't have the full background that my dad did, who was growing up post Holocaust, you know, his family, our, that, that side of my family came over between the wars. So, you know, we have an aunt. Pretty strong Sipora. racial component there for sure. Yeah. We had an aunt Sipora who, got out by seconds. I don't know all the details, but she was, she's Jewish, Eastern Europe. And a little girl comes up to her and she was a little girl in, in, I guess it'd be late thirties, early forties. And a little girl says, you're a Jew. I know you're a Jew. I'm going to go tell the Nazis that you're a Jew. Wow. So Tsipora, I don't know how she thinks of this, but goes up to the Nazi first, points to that girl and says, she's a Jew. Get her. And the Nazis heads over to that other girl. And then Sipor is gone, right? No, never to return. She makes it to Israel. She's, I, I, you know, she's living alive today in Israel. I met her when we went to Israel. I mean, more my sister, my dad know her. She's like a distant aunt of mine. But that was a story, you know, I knew growing up. So I went to a Jewish day school from kindergarten through sixth. So it was weird. You know, I'm, I'm like a, one house, I'm living in this black neighborhood. This other right. house, I'm living in a, in a, down the block from the, that was a, a very interesting, Mount Airy, I loved, I mean, I loved Germantown, Mount Airy as places to grow up in a kind of weird way of like, I, I really liked these memories, these, the, where I grew up. Uh, and then going to this Jewish day school and I had my ins and outs with Judaism, which ultimately I, I say my family's Jewish, but I don't call myself Jewish now. Hmm. There's a mix of Judaism and my father's very stern, strict, um, how he inst- I believe attempted to instill his values in me really did not jive. It, and so Christopher Hitchens, I presume, you know, some of his stuff. Me up. And he would talk about forcing a religion on a child before they can choose for themselves. He would describe his child abuse. And I was like, yup. <laughs> You're like, that's what that felt like. Yeah. I mean, there were certainly, I liked all the kids that I grew up with. But I felt like that was another, remember before I was saying how uh, things of like accidents of birth, things that I didn't choose, like I was born that way. I don't feel like I could choose to believe in God. I'm not going to not believe in God. I, I just don't feel like no religion speaks to me. And I don't feel that's the choice of mine. But nonetheless, kindergarten through sixth grade, it was forced on me. So I, do I include that in race? I don't really know, but it's... um. 
Well, it seems to it seems to play into the broader perspective of race one way or another, right? You have you have the the Jewish background, you have the you have the religious connections, all of which are all of which are highlighted issues, all of which are all of which are polarizing, divisive issues, and all of which touch one way or another, even if it's in a in a corner case manner, onto the broader topic of race. Race has been just from your description, even in what we've covered so far, and I think there's a bunch more to do, which will which will justify its own continued episodes, I suspect. But the race has been a theme in one way or another throughout your life. What is fascinating to me is this digging discovery process to determine what that impact really has been, to determine where it comes from, where it's motivated from, how has it interacted with you, how has it influenced you, and where and how should it pour out going forward? And that it feels like we're just beginning to tell that story. So far, it's been stuff that I have not shared, and I just presumed that people had somewhat comparable stories. It's only recently that I learned that people, most people have not been mugged, let alone four times a fifth as an adult. Right. It, I mean, I've, I've, not, I've had a lot of things happen. I've been beaten up. I've been bullied. I have been chased in DC by a group of people uh, who, who in this case happened to be black as I, as I was in Southeast DC and had stopped trying to find an address, but I've never actually been mugged. Yeah. It's, I, I just thought, I just thought it was a part of growing up, but apparently not for most people. Well, it's not a part of growing up. I thought being held against the stove and beaten was uh, was part of growing up. I, I you know, I, so I think you laugh, all have, you said it in a funny way. Yeah, right. I mean, we no, you're fine. I mean, I, I laugh about it a little bit now because it's it's the bigger perspective that whatever we grow up with, whatever the difficulty is, whatever the challenge is, we rationalize it and it becomes our normal. And it seems to be only later that we unpack it and look and go, wait a minute. That isn't actually normal. And it's some of it's probably not okay. But until we unpack that, we we don't connect those dots. And I I appreciate your willingness and in fact eagerness in some ways to put these difficult things into the world and to explore them and put them out there. Because even though what you're describing isn't everyone's experience and everyone's story, I think everyone that's listening can connect to that experience and that story because we all have something that feels like that, even if it isn't that. Yeah. You're really making things fall into place. The, I, what I was thinking as you're saying that was that I feel like by my not, by my fear of sharing these things, I feel like I've been robbed of an ability to unpack them to, they affect me, but in an unconscious way that I can't do anything about. And it also robs me of the ability to connect with others mm-hmm. because absolutely. One, as soon as you said the thing about the stove, I thought my situation is unique, but that people have such situations is universal, I believe, but I've yes. not been able to connect on this universality. I'm, I'm, I'm robbed of, a, of an empathy that I can have for others. And this is what I think I, I'm, I'm seeing missing in all this dialogue. I'm, I'm sure it's showing up in a lot of places, but it's, speaking only for myself, if, no, how do I put this? If people, if white people only say 
a few number of things, then they are not being open. And I believe that I just haven't heard this type of story from white people about race. I mean, I've, I've heard, I've, of course, lots of people have had struggles. Right. Everyone, I believe everyone's had struggles, but I haven't heard this to me. I've not heard this story before of, I mean, I've heard of like, I will say this, I've not heard it. I've not heard it publicly. I have. And, and you alluded to this at the beginning. I have heard pieces of this privately and people afraid maybe to explore delve in and discover what's real and what isn't it's not and one of the things i appreciate about you is there's no accusation to this there's no you're you're even intentionally avoiding labeling this and i think that's important you're exploring this and as you're exploring it and processing it and working through you can figure out what it is but at the same time you can help others connect with their own process one of the things i've found in in doing the dreams are real podcast is I've now had more than a hundred guests that we've delved deep. And because we tell the origin story, we go back and find the things like what you're talking about that are in people's lives. And I will a agree that it's universal. I, that, that we go through things. I've probably had four guests out of, out of a hundred that we haven't hit upon things that were, that were pain transformative in some way. Everybody's story is different and, and I try not to compare, but there there's something that's there. What I do hear from hundreds of listeners is that touched me, that connected with me, that, that resonated with me. I needed to hear that. And one of the things that I say frequently is that your story is the one unique thing you have in the world. And if you tell only the good and the bad, you might help some people, but the ugly is what transforms others. And until you're able to dig in and do that, you're never going to have the impact you want to have in the world. And I love that you are searching for that impact. And I, I certainly look forward to exploring it further in future episodes too. So um, I, this is like as much a starting point as any other, but I'm also sensing on the, we may be hitting a time constraint and maybe have to go to a second episode. Are, are you? I have a little bit longer that we can, that we can go, but it feels like this is also a pretty reasonable point in your story to pause or to, to find a spot to break naturally because the next part we walk into your high school is probably not going to be a five minute conversation. Yeah, there's, let me say what's on my mind. Cause I was saying how yeah. if white people don't share, that's them. I mean, that I think is an issue. I think that if they don't share, then it, at some point in the future, they're going to feel like, wait a minute, my story hasn't, I don't, I haven't been open either. But one of the things that happens is people say, but Josh, you do real, like I've, I've shared this in various forms. This isn't the first time I've shared some of these things. Sure. There's some things that actually have been the first time I've said it, but people say, Josh, you do this. I get this all the time. Josh, you do know how privileged you are. And I can't imagine someone saying that to someone who wasn't a white male. Maybe that's a limit of my imagination, but I have not had you, you and Dove have given me this listening and saying, that's interesting. Now, I'm, I'm glad that I started this time by pointing, I'm not started, but in the middle it said that I recognize that I have opportunities and advantages that others don't through no fault of my own. But there's another issue. So I acknowledge that I have these advantages that rather it's not that I, it's not something that I have. Society 
presents gives me it draped it over you right it's the it's it's I, I i would refer to it maybe as like a cloak of privilege almost as opposed to individual privilege it's something that there are there are doors that open to me that aren't open to others now there's right. some doors that are close to me actually i mean part of what i'm sharing here is that there have been many doors that have been closed to me and many punishments or you know suffer things that have really um damaged me i got sucker punched you know but there's a fine point that I don't think a lot of people realize that once they say, first of all, people want to hit me. Like, you must say that you're privileged. I'm like, Jesus, like, where's this coming from? <laughs> yeah. And, but another thing is that when someone labels me or identifies me as privileged, once that happens, there seems to be a huge lowering of humanity or individuality of me, of me in their eyes. It seems to be like that overrides everything else. Well, it's like everything else in th that we seem to do in society, right? It's a matter of extremes. It's the, the people who say always and never. It's the people who say everything and nothing. It's, and in that polarizing perspective, once you have the, the label, accurate or not, of being privileged, now that discounts everything else. It, it, it's like it kicks out all the other labels that could exist and we stop seeing people as full people. I, I do think that it's important to note that I have a lot of, I have a lot of black friends and I believe there are a lot more people out there that are true who would say that they've felt unsafe to share their stories for many years as well. And now part of that is what is, bubbling up and, and this this would certainly be part of a broader discussion but is part of what is bubbling up in some of the black lives matter movements and all the all the other pieces that are that are coming out now your story is unique your fear of telling your story is incredibly common and i think that it, that's important to acknowledge because i think a lot of people listening to this are like man i'm i don't feel comfortable telling my story you're telling it is helping other people get there. Delph said that someone's going to listen in here. And I was just thinking of like my, I, you know, happiness tends to be more outward and, and depression tends to be more inward. And I was really like, mm -hmm. what, what's going to happen to me? And he said, you know, people are going to hear this and they're going to say that resonates with me. And it didn't hit me until I talked to that guy from California. He was talking about the experience. I was like, oh my God, I'm not alone. And being told that, that because all the Congress and presidents and CEOs and boards are white men doesn't, I look at the White House and I don't have access to the White House. I don't believe, I'm not, I'm, I, I don't have it in me to say, to say that I'm religious. And I don't see anyone not religious. I mean, there's a few not religious people who have made it into Congress, but it's really rare. So I don't feel I have access there. I feel like it would be easier if I had to change one thing about myself to get into become president. That's what I would change. Wait, did I say that right? Do you know what I'm saying? Like the, the thing that what's keeping me out more, how do I put it? If I what could I'm hearing, switch, what I'm hearing is you feel like what, what keeps you away from being president other than, you know, deciding that you actually wanted to deal with the mess of politics is, is that you're not willing to profess a religion. What I feel is, is that people say, Josh, you have access that others don't. And so all these places that I, in principle, have access to because of my skin color. Well, if you didn't look past that, then yeah, the end of story, but there's more to me than my skin. And so- 
But I think I that's think, true. Or would you agree that's true for everyone though? Yeah. Oh yeah. Maybe I'm missing it because it's not being said to me, but I don't hear, I do feel bludgeoned into being like, Josh, you have access that others don't. I'm like, well, part of me, that part of me looks like it, but not all of me does, but I don't see others being bludgeoned like that. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm being overly sensitive. I would say in my observation that within this country at the moment and at this moment in time, that's probably pretty accurate because it is the, the moment where the iron is striking and, and in this country, that's the, maybe the hottest thing with all of that being the case. I would also suggest that if you were to look and say, there are a hundred places that I could have access to and that my black friend could have access to a hundred places, things, opportunities that there are, let's say that, that he'll have access to, he or she will have access to 50 and you'll have access to 80 or 90, that there are probably 10 that overlap that neither of you have access to. And maybe the presidency is one of those because of religion or, or there are some that, that he'll have access to that you won't, but that the broader percentage because of the, the systemic impact that the broader percentage is what you have access to. It's not that it's a one for one match of exactly what those things are. Yeah. The, so what we're saying here is I think, and maybe this is something to close on is that there's a lot to unpack. And I think when you say that others will hear my story and it's not their story, but it's meaningful and it will help them share their story. That tells me that my story is, has some value, but up until I started sharing it, I thought it had no value. I thought there's nothing like for me to share. I've heard people say the best thing for you to do right now, not to me personally, but to me, to groups that I'm in, the best thing for you to do right now is to shut up and listen. And there's parades that go through my neighborhood, the gay pride parade. I don't feel welcome in that parade. And it's supposed to be very inclusive. And so I've been, sh- I've been hiding this stuff. I'm afraid to say it because if I say it, in, it's a sl- you know, I think everyone knows that if you say it's just a little bit off, five words 10 years from now could be put into some tweet and end your career. And so I'm, I've been afraid to, to speak my mind because I'm afraid of someone of me being however anti-racist I am in, to adopt their, this perspective, there could still be five words that could be strung together that could destroy my career. And so I, and, and it's not valuable enough. There's no one saying, Josh, your story is valuable. Your story is worth sharing. People want to hear your story. I'm only hearing people have heard your story already. Everyone knows your story. That's what the history books are all about. And so I, I haven't been able to share them. And so I haven't been able to impact them for myself. And I haven't been able to, not just me, that these stories, there's a complexity and a richness that is being bulldozed over. I, I have definitely been told, Josh, you can share that with me because I'm your friend, but be very careful. Like I wouldn't share that with others because you're going to sound like a white supremacist. Friends of mine have said that. How am I supposed to get to speak honestly and openly if with that kind of message around? So I feel like I'm taking this giant risk to come out and, sh- and share the stuff. And then maybe I'm sharing stuff that could be misconstrued. Or let's just say that I got a giant racist streak in me that I wasn't aware of or I was blind to or something like that. All right. Let's just say that's the case. 
but what if I, the rest of me doesn't want that there, but I can't share it because if it comes out, then I get destroyed. I don't know any other way except to talk it out and not just like to the wall or to a therapist or to friends that would help me, but it would not help others. And so there's something in me that it's, there's certainly sharing things publicly is a totally other level. And I don't want to, I don't want to say that I'm, I don't want to attach too much importance to me, importance to me, but I feel like there's something here for more than just me. And it's not just a white person who's already gotten to say, who's had a voice for hundreds of years and is, and is just taking more voice. I think it's something different than that. Well, maybe not. Maybe after this is all done, I'll be like, all right, now that I shared it, it was really not that important. I don't know. I suspect this. First, there's a quote that my friend Nick Sweeney and, and former podcast guest who is a very high level martial artist, a gentleman that I respect a great deal that he shared. He said, great leaders are notable because they're rare. I think that all great leaders that come to mind for me are ones who are willing to speak their truth. They don't step in the middle of the road and become roadkill. They speak their truth. And sometimes there is a price to be paid. Sometimes there is a risk for that. Sometimes people do take things and string them together. But more often than not, the content of their character, the authenticity, the heart with which they share, if they're doing so in a compelling and important and say humble rather than arrogant, eager rather than impatient way, tends to stand up through not only the test of the moment, but the test of time. And I would suggest that telling your story is not telling it as a white person. It's telling it as Josh. And that if you're coming out and saying, Hey, look, I'm Josh. This is my story. I'm here to learn. I care. I'm also here to share and hopefully inspire. Then that's yet another step towards being one of those rare, but great leaders. And I appreciate your example in being willing to step out and do that. Is there a risk? Absolutely. Is the risk worth the reward? I'm pretty confident that it is. Well, I, it's heartwarming to hear what you said. I mean, part of the mix is that I am also vain, insecure, fearful. And so aren't we all <laughs> Yeah. so, and who knows what else is lurking inside that I just haven't faced. So, and I think you were saying how, if you're true and unguarded, then, then you will come out as a leader. But I think also it's, it's a cycle because also doing this creates if you never test yourself, you don't develop these things. So you have to enter into it, not yet having the fortitude and the, and the experience and so forth to weather it. And you, you take, and you take a step and then you learn. Yeah. We don't grow in the comfort of the covers on our bed. Right. And so we're <laughs> stepping out, stepping out, feeling like, man, I wish I'd gotten dressed first here. Here I am. <laughs> let's, let's hope it goes well. And I, I, I think there's an aspect of that, but it's also the willingness to step forward in that vulnerability. I think of, I, I, 
I think a little bit even of like Brene Brown's book, Dare to Lead and, and the willingness to truly step out is important. And to talk about the things that you're either exploring and understanding and learning or the things that you believe in passionately. And a lot of times you move from one to the other, the process is relevant and the process is inspirational I think those steps are what move us forward. It's those who, it's those who fear to tread that stand on the sidelines. Well, I hope I don't get crucified. <laughs> I hope the same. <laughs> so I'm going to, now I'm going to, I don't know if this is, this is the sort of thing that I like to hear is when I'm listening to podcasts, it's like when we started this, it was a, it was daylight. And in the time that we've spoken, the sun is set over here and the light switch is out of range. <laughs> so you're looking at me and I think it looks like uh, Blair Witch. Cause like I've turned up the brightness on the screen. So I'm, face lit so if i'm close enough to the screen it's like yeah and there's a light on the back of your uh, microphone that's like yeah. right at me so i feel like i've got this uh this, oh, it's this like a piercing light plus you as the blair witch yeah it's pretty bad yeah so i'm a blair witch and i got this like little robot looking thing <laughs> <laughs> yes i'm wondering if you have a cylon with you and yeah uh, and cylon from the old battlestar galactica not that, the oh ones. yes yeah. the old one yes fair enough <laughs> let's wrap up and schedule another time if you're game for another one that sounds good. I'm in. Thank you. It's, uh, I, I know that I'm glad it's a Friday evening because uh, it, it, I've, I'm going to ponder for a bit after this. It's good to take those steps to the, those steps process and then jump into the next piece. But it feels like we've covered a lot of ground and there's enough maybe for everybody, including those listening to process a little and come back with questions, thoughts. I, I, I look forward to the dialogue surrounding the episode as well. Oh, me too. All right. Let's wrap, let's wrap up there and we'll talk again soon.